I'm Dr. Kimberly Manning. And this is Dr. Ashley McMullen. And you're listening to the Human Doctor Podcast, where we explore the human side of medicine, along with teaching, living, learning, and all things in between. Using the power of storytelling, conversation, and connectedness. Hey, we're two dope academic internal medicine doctors, but we ain't your doctors. So if you perceive anything we say here as medical advice, no, it ain't that. Also, the things we say, they only reflect our brilliant black woman magic mind and not our employers. You could have been anywhere, y'all, but you chose to be here with us and we appreciate you. Let's Let's go. go. Here we go. Let's get this party started. Hey, I knew that was going to prompt something. Shoot, I know one thing, though. These people don't even see what I see, which is this extra fresh, extra Mm -hmm. fresh two-strand twist situation you got going on with Mahalia today. Amen. Well, first and foremost, a shout out to Zoe Coleman over in Oakland who hooked your girl up. Actually, (laughs) I was sitting in the hair salon this weekend and I had to bust out my phone and like write a poem because it just felt so good. I realized like just the ultimate place of psychological safety. Mm. I just felt so good. I felt so good being there. And now that my hair looks good, that also helps too. So So I can't tell you nothing, basically, is what you're saying. Pretty much. Okay. Well, it looks good. Mm, Thank you. Thank you. I like it. I like it. I like it. Jules is uh, keeping it classy right Mm -hmm. now. Yeah. She's got a little little trim. I feel like more of her, more, she's getting more gray these days, but- I can't mm. tell. I really can't tell. Well, no. it's all good. I, I'm enjoying uh, the gray. When I see people like who are really, really gray, like almost white, I'm like, oh, I can't wait. <laughs> um, so, yeah, should, it's all good. It's yeah, all good. no, you you could rock a, a nice a nice gray. That's the plan. Sure, that is yeah. the plan. That's the plan to be to be a jazzy a jazzy lady. You know, somebody called me jazzy on the elevator one day. No, jazzy is like a word you give to an older woman who kind of still has some style. I was like, did you just call me jazzy? (laughs) Uh, Am I at the point of jazzy? It's like the first time a stranger calls you auntie. Mm. I'm like, oh, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. So somebody's like, yeah, you jazzy. I see you. I'm like, damn. Entering a new era. So what's new? Got any new things that you discovered over the weekend? Well, one of the things I had the the privilege of um, checking out this weekend was this, this, there's this group in the Bay Area called Formerly Incarcerated Persons Project or People's oh, Project. Right. So it's basically a theater group made up of individuals who were formerly incarcerated and they do solo performance, acting out some of their experiences throughout life. And I've been to one of their events before. This one was actually held in the backyard of one of the directors in Berkeley. His name is Mark McGoldrick. He's a former public defender. It was just like a very, very nice, intimate experience of like creative expression and really these incredible human beings who have obviously made some mistakes, but are now at a point where they're open and sharing their vulnerability and really inviting people in to Mm -hmm. some of their experiences, both before, during, and after incarceration. So we'll put the link in the show notes. Shout out to, to Catherine. It was really cool to be able to, to check that out. Yes. And I'm, di- I am glad that you did shout out Catherine, who just of her own volition stepped in to the team and became our show note curator. So mm-hmm. 
all while being a PGY2 resident. So shout out to you. Yes. Yeah. Well, that sounds, FIPP sounds really interesting and I'm, and I look forward to learning more about it. That sounds dope. For sure. Um, Yeah. What about you? So um, a few things going on with me right now. We are in the throes of our virtual visiting mini clerkship at Emory for the Department of Medicine. It's um, through our RISE diversity, equity, and inclusion team. I have three extraordinary human beings that I have been given the great fortune to get to know, all from three different states. And I'm just really getting to know them well, really amazing people. And I really love that program because it was born out of necessity from the pandemic, Mm. but it proved to actually be a good way for us to um, introduce people to our our residency program, but also, you know, for us to do some professional development um, because it isn't just a recruitment tool. It's really about developing these students to be great residents and leaders, but it's really nice knowing that, hey, You don't have to leave your state and do all the things that disrupt your life to be able to come and have a really great experience. And so I've been really proud of that and Mm. excited about what all these students get exposed to. So shout out, shout out to our students. Yes. What else? Um, Shout out to my colleagues, Francois Rollin, Tracy Henry, and Amy Miller, who put together this extraordinary curricular piece for our medical students on race in medicine Mm -hmm. uh, that we recently have been doing as small group advisors. With it came a lot of reading and some really well-organized small group sessions. But my recommendation is a podcast series that came out maybe about mm, about four or five years ago. The series is called Seen on Radio. Mm -hmm. That's what the podcast is called, but this very specific 14 part I guess that's the series, is called Seeing White. It is the most eye-opening, most interesting, one of the most well-done things I've seen on race. And I read a lot of stuff and listen to a lot of stuff. But this one in particular is about the history of white and race in the United States. It unpacks so many things. And it doesn't doesn't listen as preachy. It listens as interesting and thought-provoking and probing. So no matter who you are, I would strongly urge you to check out Seen on Radio, Seeing White. Google that, you'll find it. Oh, it's going to be in our show notes. There you go. Boom, boom. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I listened to it years ago, but I re-listened to it after this curricular piece that we just did. And I am just all over again, like mind blown. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Some strong wrecks there. That's my wreck. That's my wreck. <laughs> Well, it is our final episode and, you know, we'll share that we are nearing 90,000 downloads thus far. We are? Yes, ma'am. Oh, wow. Ma'am. So let me just quickly take the time to, to thank our audience. Thank you so, so, so much to everybody who's been listening, sharing, particularly those who've taken the time to, to share a review. Those matter a lot. And also congratulations to everybody who's tuning into this episode because it will be a knock your socks off story from none other than the Dr. Kimberly Manning. Tell us what is the what for this episode? I think the what is you. You. Okay. Man, you hit us with the the thought provoking. Why O U? Why O U? You. Okay. 
you. And I, I, I'd like us to all like take a moment and just um, center on like what that means to us. One of the things I always like to say to my, my small group advisees, my students, is I tell them I'm team you. Mm. And so when they're like, oh, you know, thank you for helping me with this. Or can you help me with this? I'm like, look, I'm team you. Mm. I tell my kids that. I tell my husband that. And um, today I'm thinking about it in the context of my patients. You know, I'm team you. And what that means to me is me seeing you and me trying to work hard to see the part of you that maybe the world doesn't see or maybe you have forgotten to see. And so this um, story goes back maybe about five years. I was rounding at Grady and service was real busy. I was on the hospital service, which means that my clinical um, responsibility involved me working with a team of resident physicians and medical students. And we were taking care of somewhere between about 14 to 20 people who had been hospitalized. I work in a safety net hospital and in that environment, people are often hurting, they're resource poor. You can see some of the greatest hardships of the aftermath of the way that our system has made it hard on people. Mm-hmm. On this particular day, it had been a really tiring set of days you know, trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents, wanting mm-hmm. to discharge somebody to this place and you can't send them there. Wanting somebody to go to a particular shelter, but they can't go to that shelter because they can't walk to the bathroom or they can't leave in the morning. Yeah. Or somebody needing to go somewhere and they don't live in Fulton or DeKalb County, which is where our county hospital serves. And we're trying to help them figure it out or they're an immigrant um, who doesn't have documentation. It's just always something, you know, and it was one of those weeks, man. Yeah. So I usually have the residents and the interns and the students present their patients at the bedside in front of the patient. This particular patient, the intern looks at me and says, I think it's best that we present this patient in the hallway. I don't think Mm. this is somebody we should go in the room all together. And usually if somebody says that to me, you know, if I'm not extremely busy, I'll say why. But, you know, I was extremely busy on this day. Mm-hmm. So I just said, uh, okay. And the intern begins to present this patient. The patient was a young man who had bacteremia, which means there was bacteria growing in his blood. And he also had a big abscess on his thigh, which had come through injection drug use. He originally had been using veins and everything, and after having some trouble with veins, began to do something that I know you've heard of in San Francisco called skin popping, where you just inject yourself just straight into wherever you can get it and hope Mm -hmm. some of it gets to you. So he had been skin popping, and he wasn't in the cleanest environment, had some unstable housing, and at this particular moment had been brought into police custody, so was in police custody and was being treated by us. You know, there was nothing really exotic about that particular presentation. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Why did you choose for us to present the patient in the hallway? And, and the intern says, it's unsettling the way that the patient talks and behaves. Mm. He can be a little verbally abusive. He says some things that are a little inappropriate. And also, it's just very uncomfortable. And I don't know that I want the whole team to stand and, and do all that. Mm. And I was thinking to myself, uh, okay, so like, is he physically doing anything like no but he's just saying a lot of things and my feeling is that you know if you're a medical student and you old enough to be in medical school with few exceptions you grown yeah um, 
if you grown and you signed up to be a doctor, every patient is not going to call you sweetie and wish you luck. Sometimes it's going to be people who have lived hard lives and they're going to be saying and doing some things that might cause you to be a little bit uncomfortable. But I, I don't actually shield medical students from that. At that moment, I made up my mind that we were going in the room as a team. Mm. And I'd already heard the whole story by then. And I explained that to the team. I think I said, I think it's important for us all to see these types of patients. And I want to I wanna paint a little bit of a picture for you here. This patient was in police custody and he was restrained uh, to the hospital bed with a handcuff, but around his ankle. There was an officer that was sitting in the corner of the room and the patient looked completely unbothered and unfazed by all of it. He was a youngish man when I said, no, nah, he was young, <laughs> young, like maybe like, if you're young enough to be my child, then you definitely young. <laughs> so he's probably like early twenties, mm-hmm. laying on his back, hair, kind of a disheveled mass of, you know, loose curls, a sandy brown complexion, these big brown, kind of light brown eyes with really long eyelashes, the kind that are unfairly given to boys. <laughs> and just kind of looked in my direction as I came over with the team and I said, hi, how are you? He looks at me and he goes, don't even try to hit me with no like soft doctor talk, you know, cause I'm telling you right now, whatever, I, whatever you got, it ain't worth it. Don't come up in here trying to care or nothing. <laughs> going to look at this thing on my leg. And yes, I got it because I stuck myself with a needle because I was trying to get high. It's the first thing he said to me. I was like, okay. So I, I put my hand out and I said, what should I call you? And he's looking at my hand and I was like, you gonna leave me hanging? <laughs> and he was like, you want to shake my hand? How you know I don't have cooties? And I was like, what are cooties anyway? I mean, we kind of laughed. And I said, you're, gonna, you're not going to shake my hand? And he was like, no, nah, I'll shake your hand. So he shakes my hand and I could tell that that was the first time anybody in that hospital had touched his hand. Wow. And to be clear, you know, there's some people who, for whatever reason, don't shake hands with patients, but I'm a person who shakes hands with patients. A lot of my colleagues shake hands with patients. And he seemed surprised. So I put his hand in my hand and I covered it with my other hand. I said, what should I call you? He was like, you should call me a junkie because I'm a junkie. Mm. And I said, a junkie? I said, well, a junkie is like such a, an old man word. I was like, how old are you, man? You're like in your early 20s. What do you know about junkies? He said, I know about junkies because I got a mirror. I'm a junkie. And I just kept laughing. I was like, dude, a junkie. He said, I don't know what you want to call me. A druggie, a junkie. I don't know. Some people just like to get high. They like a lost cause. That's what I am. I'm a lost cause. Mm. And I was like, wow, you're a lost cause. You want me to call you a lost cause? And he was like, nah, I told you, you call me a junkie. And he started laughing. The nurse comes in the side of the room. He says, hey, y'all didn't get me a double portion and I wanted some ginger ale. And she kind of rolled her eyes a little bit and walked out of the room. Mm-hmm. And he's like, hey, can you get me a double portion? I said, a double portion of food? And he said, yeah, I said, you know, I actually think that's something I can do. Would that make make it better for you in the hospital? And he was like, yeah, that would make it better for me in the hospital. Anyway, look at my wound. I'm trying to get up out of here because as soon as I get out of here, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get high. I can look at your wound, but I just want to get to know you a little bit more. It ain't nothing to know about me. I told you I'm a junkie. 
I'm a person who gets high and then looks for ways to get high and I rob people so that I can get high. And that's why I'm locked up, but they don't got no space for people like me. So they're gonna let me out and I'm gonna go get high and I'm probably gonna get locked up again. And every time he would call himself a junkie or a lost cause, he would laugh. And he knew that it was kind of like gallows laughter, right? Yes. Like the kind of laughter that it is not funny. Mm-hmm. And every time he laughed, I didn't laugh. But while he was saying all this, I was still holding on to his hand with both of my hands. And I turned over the wrist on his hand and saw his armband, which had his name on it. I'm going to give him a name, which isn't his name. I'm going to call him Marlon. And I was like, I'm going to call you Marlon. Can I call you Marlon? He was like, you don't want to call me a junkie? I was like, no, Marlon, I don't want to call you a junkie. He was like, okay. And I said, I tell you what, Marlon, what I want to do is I'm going to examine you. I'm going to listen to your heart and see if I hear any extra sounds in your heart, because if you have bacteria in your blood, it could get on your heart valve. So I want to listen for that. And then I'm going to look at your wound. And then I'm going to look at the rest of your skin to see if there's any other like things popping up anywhere. And then I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about what to expect in the hospital. How does that sound, Marlon? And he was like, that's cool. And I said, and I'm going to get you a double portion so that you don't feel hungry. And he was like, yeah, that's cool. I will do whatever you want to do. I mean, I see the way you're looking at me and trying to talk to me like, you know, I don't know, like this is going to be a breakthrough or something. It ain't, trust me, it's not. I, like some people just like to get high. Some people like they, they really want to get sober. I do not. I like to get high. And I was like, okay, but that plan works for you? He goes, yeah. So I do what I said. And I'm making sure that I don't have gloves on or anything. I'm touching him. Cause I was like, I'm gonna wash my hands afterwards. I'm just gonna, I'm, I think it's important for me to put my hands on him. Mm. And I am touching him in ways that say, I'm not scared of you. He didn't have open wounds on his chest. So I examined him. Then when I got to his wound, I put on some gloves. I looked at the wound. It looked to be fine. It had been packed, closed it back up, took my gloves off pulled up a chair, sat down. And I explained to him what was going on with his health. And, you know, he kept interrupting with things that were like very unsettling. So I was like, Marlon, tell me how you got involved in injecting heroin. How did, how did this happen? He said, it don't matter. I can tell you this. It is not something that is going to end. <laughs> and he started laughing again. He's like, I love getting high. I just love it. I do. I'm telling you. It is nothing like like when you're real sick and then you get a hit and then oof. So I said, okay, but just still just humor me. Like, where's your where are your people? Where's your family? I don't have no family. Because when you a junkie, your family don't mess with you no more. Nobody talks to me. Like, I don't talk to anybody. I be in the street. And I am just looking at him. And the more I looked at him, the more I could just see him as a kid. Mm because he had one of those faces that looked like he probably looked the very same when he was three you know he just Mm -hmm. had these big beautiful eyes and he kind of had little dirt smudge on his face because he looked like he hadn't bathed in a while his teeth had managed to be spared from all the hard living he was doing so he had these beautiful teeth in his mouth and he would smile and was a pretty smile that kind of lit up the room Mm -hmm. and and he was beautiful he was just beautiful. He was like lean and athletic and just beautiful. I looked at him and I said, who do you look like in your family? And he was like, who do I look like in my family? I don't look like nobody in my family because nobody in my family is a junkie. And I was like, huh, okay. I was like, no, I just, 
wonder who you look like in your family. You know, I just, as I look at you, you have such spectacular eyes. You have a few freckles on your face. It just makes me wonder who people say you favor in your Mm -hmm. family. And he was like, well, I don't know. You know, still like trying to stiff arm me. I finally look at him and I say, you know what, Marlon? Where's your mom? Where's your mom? He said, my mom, my mom is dead. That's where my mom is. So see, that ain't gonna work either. <laughs> and my whole team is like cringing with mm-hmm. every single thing he's saying. And it is, it is breaking my heart. And I was like, okay, did you get to know your mother by any chance? Did I know my, yeah, hell yeah, I knew my mom. My mom was dope. And I was like, okay. So I took his hands again and I looked at him and I said, you know what, Marlon? I think that your mom would not want anybody to call you a junkie. I don't know your mom, I said, but I think maybe she wouldn't want anybody to call you a junkie. And I'm a mom of sons and um, you know, moms are protective of their sons. And not only that, we're protective of other people's sons too. I said, so I feel like I can take care of this wound on your leg We'll clear the infection in your blood. We'll be able to get you out of the hospital. I said, but I think the reason I'm here today is to stand in for your mom and to look at you as your mom would look at you and tell you that I don't want you to call yourself a junkie. And he just kept staring at me. And I was like, because the mom in me is feeling hurt every time you say that. And mm. What I see is somebody's beautiful baby boy. Mm. That's what I see. And he was staring at me and he's like looking up and looking over and I could see that like his eyes were starting to well with tears. And I was like, Marlon, man, look, I can't fix this. But whatever situation set you up to be let down like this. I am so sorry, man. I said, and what I can promise you I'm gonna do while you're in this hospital is I'm gonna look at you like you somebody's son and not like you a junkie. And he just sat there for a minute and then he started crying. Mm. He started crying hard too. And um, he was just like, I don't even know why you and he like started yelling at me. I don't even know why you even talking to me like that. I don't even know why you act like you give a fuck about me. Excuse my French. I don't, <laughs> even, I don't even know why you're doing that. I don't know why you're doing that because it's a lost cause. It's a lost cause. I was like, Marlon, nobody's a lost cause. Nobody's mm-hmm. a lost cause. He's like, I am a lost cause. Trust me. I am a lost cause. And I was like, but what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong, man? What if you're wrong? And, and again, I'm still holding his hand, which is speckled with needle marks and all kinds of stuff. And um, I was just like, it's not true, man. It's not true. I don't know who told you that. I don't know who told you you're a lost cause, but you're like 22, man. Like you're not a lost cause. And by the time we got through having this conversation, and again, my entire team and even the officer, because he wouldn't leave when I asked him, they were just standing there. And this was like, they all disappeared for me. And it was just Mm -hmm. me 
and this woman's son. And I just was like, man, I'm team you. I'm team you. And listen, bro, I'm, I'm trying to do what I know your mama would do if my boy was in here. Mm. And he was like, he just, every time I brought up his mom, he would start crying more. He's like, my mom would, mm. my mom would. I said, did your mom live to see any of what's happening to you? He was like, no. I was like, how, how, did, how did this happen? He was skateboarding. A kid skateboarding was very good at it. And he would go throughout the city and find all the places with the stairs and all the, you know, do all the tricks. He was doing skateboard tricks and he fell and broke his ankle. And it required pins and surgery and all that stuff. And after he got surgery, he was given narcotics. You know, it was very painful because he had one of those big contraptions on his leg and everything. Mm -hmm. And he got at least about two or three weeks worth of heavy duty narcotics. And then from there, he got out of the hospital and they gave him more. He came back in a couple more times for pain and people saw what he'd gone through and gave him some more. And then there was a point where, of course, they tried to de-escalate him and they didn't really de-escalate him. They just shut it off. Mm -hmm. But he was taking so much narcotic that, as the story goes, he fell sick. And he didn't have much money because he was young and he bought a few pills here and there. And finally was with a friend and he was like, I feel terrible, man. I, like, I got to figure out something for my pain. And his friend was like, well, I know something that can help you, but it involves needles. And his friend shot him up for the first time. And then from there, he just started trying to not feel sick. And then the rest kind of went from there. But really, this was a story of somebody that we let down, that our yeah. system let down mm -hmm. and who had come up in a resource poor area. Unfortunately, his mother had died at a fairly young age when he was a teenager. Not sure why, but didn't really have much other family or support or anything like that. So now it's just kind of in the street, hurting and trying not to feel sick. And once he told me his story, I was like, so it's not really that you love to get high. It's just that you don't want to be sick. And at this point, he had kind of taken down that barrier wall and and he was letting me touch him now he was letting me hold his hand he was holding my hand back and he was crying and i was crying too because all i could think was like gosh you know this is like sliding doors man this is just how it kind of happened for you and this kid is like no different than my kids he was clearly cherished at some point by somebody Mm -hmm. And then just the bottom fell out and there was no soft place to land. And I wish I could tell you that he left the hospital and then we took him from there and he went to rehab. And then I ran into him three years later and he was like, hey, Dr. Manning, now I'm, you know, the CEO of a startup in Silicon Valley. That is not what happened. What instead happened is that we ended up having a really good therapeutic alliance while he was in the hospital. Yeah. And it wasn't the last time that I cried with him. And every time I walked out of his room and even in his room, I would tell him I was so sorry that we let him down, that the world let him down. And I guess I tell that story because somebody has to be team you. <laughs> somebody has mm -hmm. to be team you for you to win. 
<laughs> I thought I could get through the story without crying, but like the very best thing anybody can give you is to cherish you. And for Marlon, there was nobody looking at him and saying, I'm team you. Yeah. And I believe that just as people dumping on you stacks up, people being kind to you does too. I have not seen him since, but I like believing that the three days he was in the hospital where he was treated with decency and where he didn't run me off for saying all these upsetting things about himself. I just hope and pray that like, at some point he was able to, I don't know, believe that he was something more than a lost cause. Yeah. I kind of think he was kind of saying it to try to, you know, ruffle our feathers, but I kind of think he believed it. Yeah. I think that's the part that makes me so sorry. And I know people have let him say it and agree with him. Somebody's got to be team you because you ain't going to be team you if nobody else is. A large part of me just wants to let this story stand <laughs> and not even or add to it because I think that there is something in there for each person that needs to be sat with and, and felt deeply. But I will just add like for me what hurts the most is just how often you recognize folks internalizing all the messages that are imposed onto them by a harsh society and it felt like you know this individual this this young man barely a man was trying to give everybody a way out like it's okay you don't have to find empathy for me you don't have to feel compassion for me you don't even have to come in the room the other thing that I can see happening is, you know, people hear this story and they're mesmerized by by you, Kimberly, and like you're, and I know personally from having experienced this, that you have a particular way of seeing people, of seeing past facades and really deeply seeing folks. And at the same time, I think that it is within all of us to see folks differently. I think that's what's hard about our profession is just like, when you're in a position of power, like you don't have to see someone as your own child. And when you don't do that, when you don't see them, when you don't take the time to find the the human connection, you can abuse that power in ways that don't, that don't make you feel bad. Yeah. He's a junkie. He doesn't remind me of anybody that I know. Yeah. So I'm going to treat him as such and, you know, continue to hold on to that narrative and feed that narrative back to this individual. And I feel like it's this perpetual lesson we keep coming back to. It's just like, if you just find the time and the space to be still, then you can really see someone Mm -hmm. in their entirety, in their humanity. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's risky business, right? To start to ask somebody about their parents or whatever sort of traumatic things they could have experienced. But something told me that this was okay. Like I felt this very intense feeling to stand with his mom. Mm. You know, as your kids get older, 
and and maybe I'm 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 telling the story some because huh, I have young sons, you know, or man children. And for black men, this world will chew them up and spit them out, man. And um I just need to know that there are people in places in the world who will step in for me. Mm. You know, I think I told you this before. I used to tell my kids when they were little, if they ever got separated from me in a store or at a festival, find the oldest black woman you can find Mm -hmm. and she will take care of you. Yeah. (laughs) Find somebody who looks like they are somebody's mom or grandma, a black woman, and she will take care of you. Yeah. And, And obviously black women aren't the only people who will take care of you, but historically, in this country, we have been caregivers. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just have to believe that there is a whole army of us, aunties, mother figures, uncles, non-binary, you know, loved ones who are just like all waiting in the wings to step in and love on you when this world is not. I am actually hoping that just that little tiny sliver made him at least think of himself as Marlon and not a junkie in a yes. lost cause. Yeah. And the optimist in me thinks it is possible. Sis, thank you for blessing us with that story. I want to thank you personally for being team me. You know, we'll, there's some stories we'll share maybe in the next season. <laughs> Look, I've cried enough, please. Yeah. <laughs> don't even don't even take us in that direction. Yes. You already know. Yeah, because I'm I'm I done let off a few ugly cries this season. Yeah. <laughs> I think I must need some time. But yeah, y'all, if y'all get me talking about me and Ashley, y'all, it could be it could get real, real dicey. Yeah. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll let folks know my, my ugly cries have happened off camera. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. But you know, if you you are listening and you feel yourself feeling lonely and like there is not anybody out here in this world checking for you, we are. We are. We really are. You know, there's this thing that I say to my kids all the time. We were never really little and they would do things that were like dangerous, like run away from me or do something crazy on the jungle gym or something like that. And I would get over to them and I would look them in the face and I would say, hey, what would my life be if something ever happened to you? And the answer is ruined. And when would I get over it? And the answer is never. So I hope there is somebody in your life who feels that way. And it doesn't have to be your parent. It does not have to be your partner. It does not have to be your best friend. There are people in the world where if your unique piece of you was not here, some slice of their world would be ruined. Mm. And when would they get over it? Never. Yeah. Doesn't mean they can't keep living. Doesn't mean that. But that's what I think it means for somebody to be team you. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So if you need to to hear that, and I think there's some people out there who probably do. Absolutely. To everybody who's listened, everybody who's sent me messages on the side or sent Kimberly messages, please, please know that we are team you. Well, sis, 
I love you. I am glad to do this with you. And you know what my life would be if something happened to you? Ruined. And when would I get over it? Never. All right, sis, I love you. I love you too. I'm going to go cry now. (laughs) (laughs) That wraps up this week's episode of the Human Doctor Podcast. Special thanks to our favorite brother gastroenterologist, Dr. Chuma Obiname for the beats. Shout out to the Dr. Ashley McMullen for editing and production. Mad love to our podcast family at The Nocturnist and The Clinical Problem Solvers, our med Twitter fam. And especially shout out to all of you, our listeners. Until next week, remember, we see you and you are enough. Holla! Holla.